Dear listeners, welcome to Faces of Digital Health, a podcast about digital health and how healthcare systems around the world adopt technology. With me, Tiasha Zaitz. ChatGPT has been entertaining and amazing the world in the last month, and there's no shortage of ideas and new inspiration about what AI could do for healthcare. So I prepared a short series of three episodes in which we will touch upon this topic through three angles. We will first take a look at the state of symptom checkers and their accuracy today, the development and state of voice tech and natural language processing for structuring medical data, and end with a comment on ChatGPT, chatbots and Google's recently released paper on Multimed QA, which is a benchmark combining six existing open question answering datasets spanning professional medical exams, research and consumer queries, and Health Search QA, a new free response dataset of medical questions searched online. We'll start with the discussion with Jeff Cutler, Chief Commercial Officer of Ada Health, whom I spoke to at HLTH. Ada is the world's most popular symptom assessment app with 10 million users and 25 million completed assessments. Every three seconds, someone turns to Ada for personal health guidance. Symptom checkers have been around for a while. However, their reliability and accuracy is still questionable. So, Jeff and I discussed the development of accuracy and business models of symptom checkers, how is ADA improving the accuracy of its algorithms, localization to different languages and different cultures, partnerships with enterprises such as Sutter Health and Kaiser Permanente to enhance the information and care patients receive even before entering the doctor's office. By the way, did you check our newsletter yet? It only comes out every few weeks with a summary of a specific topic and an overview of the past episodes. So go to fodh.substack.com that's fodh.substack.com to check the newsletter and subscribe to it. Also find the link in the show notes. Now enjoy today's discussion. So Jeff, symptom checkers have been around for a while, but the conclusion of a very recent systematic review of all the symptom checkers showed that basically they are still quite unreliable, that the triage accuracy varied substantially among different providers. From that perspective, how do you see the evolution in terms of the reliability of symptom checkers? First of all, hi Taja, thank you for having me today. The study you're referencing among many others, we actually embrace because we think that there needs to be a lot more attention placed on services like ours so that people better understand them. First and foremost, we don't believe that any technology is going to ultimately replace doctors. We think technologies like ours actually help doctors. So when you read a lot of these studies, what they don't go into 
is what happens when you make this data available to the clinicians themselves. And what we found is by putting the results of our assessment, which as you're probably familiar, we have a, a world-class medical grade assessment that we make available that then helps people understand the symptoms they have and the conditions that might be causing it. We also then go one step further and we make that information available through our partnerships to the actual medical doctors and nurses and medical professionals that are ultimately examining them. So by putting that data in their hands, we find that it helps them both become more accurate in their ultimate diagnosis, but also in considering certain conditions that they may not be as familiar with. So how does that actually work? Does a patient fill out the questionnaire and present the results to the doctor? Or does the doctor ask the patient, please try this out before you come into the office? There's multiple ways. First of all, through our consumer app, which has now been downloaded by more than 12 million people over the last five and a half years. It's freely available in the both iOS and Android app stores. Through that app, when someone goes through the assessment, at the completion of their assessment, we produce a full comprehensive report with what's known as these differential conditions, the probabilities, and a lot of information that we've developed to help them understand the condition, how to treat it, side effects, other things that they might want to do in terms of getting an ultimate diagnosis, and we then make that available to them through a PDF. So they can take that PDF, they can download it, they can share it with a physician or a loved one or someone else. That's on the consumer side. When we work with enterprise partners, for instance, here in the U.S., we now serve as the digital front door for both Sutter Health and Kaiser Permanente, where their patients come through an enterprise version of ADA, they do an assessment, and then instead of just giving them general advice, we map it to the actual triage and care modalities that they offer. So instead of resulting in, oh, you should see a doctor in the next three to five days, it would actually say, click here for, and then up to that partner what they offer, a telehealth consultation, a primary care specialist appointment, or perhaps to go immediately to a clinic. We then make all of that data available to the clinician in an electronic format in one of two ways. We make it directly available in the electronic health record, so it's available as part of the clinical workflow. When they're there examining the patient, they can actually see the data, review it before they see the patient, have the benefit of all the questions and answers we gave, but then we also make it available through an API, an application programming interface, in what's known here in the U.S. as the FHIR standard. It's for interoperability so that other platforms can handle it. So when we deliver the data through the API, that they then have the ability to integrate it into whatever systems they want. But we make sure it's all seamless and clinically assess- accessible. Sounds like quite a big change in the workflow process for the clinicians. I know that the partnership with Sutter Health is relatively new, and now you know three million patients have access to this. How is the whole process managed in terms of the change, and how you need to prepare the clinicians about the changes that are coming with this option for patients? Sure. First of all, you're absolutely right. It needs to be part of the existing clinical workflow. We can't come in with solutions for these doctors. They're just too busy where they have to then go into a separate system to be able to see this kind of information. So we integrate it at the point of care in the actual electronic health record they're using. So here in the U.S., Epic is the most popular health system. When they go and examine patients, that's where they're accessing the patient's health history. That's where they're putting in their recommendations. So that's where we make it available so they don't have to change their workflow. They can just, as part of all the other information they're reviewing, review the ADA assessment and the results. But you don't take the information out of the EHR and the existing patient data? 
Actually, we do. That's another great question because once again, on the consumer app, if you've used it or for people that have used it, you know that up front, we ask a few basic questions. We ask their demographics, their name, age, sex, and we ask for certain risk factors. Like, do they have diabetes? Do they smoke? Do they suffer from high blood pressure? And if they were female, we would ask if they're pregnant. When we work with an enterprise partner, they pass us that information from the electronic health record. So we don't have to trouble the patient by asking them information that their doctor's already familiar with. And as we move forward, we'll be able to have more and more ability to pull data from third-party sources. So for instance, we're already starting to work on research where we can pull data in from someone's trackers, their wearables, their watches. There's a lot of connected health devices, glucometers, continual glucose monitoring, Bluetooth propellants, and we'll be able to read the data from those types of platforms as well because any of all of that information helps change the probabilities of what someone's actually experiencing. If we go back to the accuracy a little bit, so we mentioned earlier that it's still problematic, but it's also true that different providers of symptom checkings cover different range of conditions. Where are we with that? What's the variability that you see, and how are you expanding perhaps the conditions that you are sure that you can reliably talk about when patients type in their symptoms? First of all, when it comes to the accuracy in those studies, we're very proud of our results. While no one ever actually beats human beings, the doctors themselves, in most of those studies, we do come the closest. So we're very proud. We measure our medical quality on three primary factors. We base it on the actual comprehensive coverage. And to answer that question, we currently cover over 3,600 conditions. And that maps to over 31,000 ICD-10 codes here in the United States. So just to put that in perspective, we believe that's at least more than twice as much in terms of the coverage as anybody else has at least publicly announced that they have. And quite often, it's as many as 100 times more. There's many popular symptom checkers out there that are really just designed to cover the top 20, 30, 50 conditions that people are experiencing. The other thing we do is we work with life sciences companies to map the rare diseases that are out there. There's about 7,500 rare diseases, and people just aren't familiar with them. So what we do is we identify with our partners the ones that have treatments. We work them into our knowledge base with them so that both clinicians and patients are more familiar with some of these rare conditions, and we're continually adding more and more. The second way we measure medical quality is on the accuracy itself, which you've referenced and we talked briefly about, and we're very proud. When we look at accuracy, a lot of people just focus on the first condition. Okay, this platform told me it was sinusitis. But the reality is we actually present several different possibilities, and those possibilities are all at play because they're all being caused by similar symptoms. So when we look at accuracy, we tend to measure it by looking at the top like three conditions and say, okay, if in those top three conditions are we ultimately identifying the condition that was at play, and when you expand it to that type of broader coverage, then the accuracy improves dramatically. And that's the way we think it should be measured because the clinician is not sitting there just zeroing in on one condition. And then the third axis with which we measure quality is what we call medical safety. So if we're giving advice to someone that thought they had to go to an emergency room, and we say, no, you don't have to go to an emergency room. You can see a doctor in the next couple of days, or you can have a telehealth consultation. Ultimately, was that the safe advice? And what we do when we work with our enterprise partners is we build feedback loops so that they can ultimately tell us, were we accurate and was it safe? And then the algorithms continually improve themselves. 
if we look at a specific example about a study that was done about the algorithm, it was basically assessing to rheumatologists and diagnosis in the rheumatoid disease. So generally speaking, up to 60% of patients referred to a rheumatologist do not end up with a diagnosis of inflammatory rheumatic disease. And so in this study that I'm mentioning that was published in the Rheumatology International Journal, it was shown that compared to the GPs, which were correctly diagnosing patients in 82% of cases, ADA had a 71% accuracy, so still quite close to the doctors. But still, when it comes to technology, there's still this perception that it has to be 100% accurate. And what happens with the 30% of patients that weren't correctly diagnosed? So how do you look at these dilemmas? First of all, we don't believe that any technology, once again, is going to replace clinicians. There are some companies out there that take the position that AI will ultimately replace doctors. We do not subscribe to that. We believe that we become the doctor's allies. In fact, there's a great quote out there that says that AI will not replace doctors, but doctors that use AI are going to replace those that don't. We believe ultimately that's how we're going to improve outcomes and become more accurate overall. What about business models? So we said that symptom checkers have been around for a while. How do you see that the thinking is changing in terms of what works and what doesn't work in terms of reimbursement and just making money out of these things? Sure. When it comes to the business models, a lot of it really depends on the type of care model that the particular healthcare institution is operating under. So in the U.S., we've been having this gradual move towards value-based care. So for those partners that already have value-based care models, where ultimately they're being paid to keep people healthier, our platform becomes incredibly valuable because we're able to keep people out of emergency rooms when they don't need to go to them. We're able to keep people healthier overall. So for instance, when you look at all of our assessments globally, about 14% of them result in some kind of self-care or self-care with a pharmacist. If you think about that, it's 14% of overall cases that would have been heading either towards a, an emergency room visit, a doctor consultation, that found out that they might be able to take care of this themselves. So we're able to improve that bottom line. And as we move forward, we're looking to expand our business models to hopefully share in the value and the savings that we're driving our partners. Many of the other, in fact, most of the health systems in the U.S. right now are still what we call fee-for-service, where they're actually paid specifically for acquiring new patients and for delivering healthcare services to them. So in those models, what we typically do is we price our platform on a flat annual SaaS licensing model where they pay for access to our platform and they then make that available to their, to their patients themselves. But over time, what we're looking to do is to work with them to better understand that value and figure out how can we expand the business models so that it really becomes more of a win-win for both of them. So you mentioned earlier that 12 million patients have tried Ada Health, it's available globally. Are you seeing any differences among patients across the world? What are they looking for? What are the results that they get? How much can you actually follow up what patients did with the information that they got from taking the assessment through the symptoms checker? Sure. First of all, we do model our knowledge base to build in the specific geographic pop, uh, probabilities of certain conditions. So for instance, in one example, uh, malaria has been eradicated for the most part here in the United States. So if someone was doing an assessment 
in the United States and presented all the symptoms of malaria, we wouldn't be recommending that as a condition unless we exhausted possibilities. And then we might say something like, have you recently traveled to a certain area where it still is in existence? If someone was doing the assessment from an area where that disease is still prevalent, we would build that into the probabilities. And in regards to the other part of your question, what we're building into our platform now are more overall, what I'll call wellness tools to help people manage their health more proactively instead of reactively. I like to joke when I give public speeches, I often ask the audience, do you know the number one reason that people in the United States go to see a doctor? And then I say, it's to find out if they need to see a doctor. That's what we take the guesswork out of, right? So in many cases, what we're trying to do is expand our value proposition and value to the users so that they can do things like track their symptoms, so that they can track their medications. And ultimately, we want to both help them better manage their, I'll call it wellness, as opposed to their sickness, and then in addition, be able to manage the entire end-to-end care journey. So instead of just saying, go see a doctor in the next days, we want to start offering more and more what we call post-assessment care options so that people can come in and actually seek the care that they need, perhaps even get a prescription for the medication, maybe get that medication delivered much more quickly, so that what we call the time to diagnose and treat is accelerated, thereby hopefully keeping people healthier. And what, is, what are some of the biggest challenges that you currently see in the space? Well, I think one of the challenges here in the U.S. continues to be the migration from fee-for-service to value-based care. Because if, you're, if we have a platform where it perhaps is keeping people out of certain care services or away from certain care services, you need to make sure that fits with your customer's business model. You don't want them suddenly losing money because people aren't seeking the same types of care options. So this whole movement towards value-based care plans, getting people into managed care plans, into more of these chronic condition programs becomes so much more important. In addition, the specificity with which we can direct patients to becomes more important. So for instance, in the case of Sutter Health, we actually launched with Sutter over three years ago. We launched uh, Sutter's front end in April of 2019, and we've been gradually adding more and more what I'll call specialist-type referrals, and we're very proud to announce a couple weeks ago that we're now driving users, young adults in particular, that are indicating Uh, indicative of some type of mental health struggle or issue, we're driving them into a new program that Sutter Health has developed called Scout. And Scout is specifically designed coming out of COVID and the pandemic. We've all seen a rise in, in, in additional mental health illnesses and struggles, and it's becoming more and more a part of everybody's life. So we're now able to work with Sutter, not just to help people assess what might be wrong today, but also determine if they're at risk of or suffering from a chronic condition and then specifically direct them to that type of program. In addition to mental health, we're going to start expanding that into both diabetes and cardiovascular programs. Because once again, people just don't contextually know when something like that is needed and even that it might be available. So we're hoping to really increase overall adoption, awareness, and utilization of those services. It's interesting that you mentioned mental health because it's the area that's still on top of the investment priorities at the moment. And here at Health, the statistics were mentioned that, for example, in 2019, 11% of adults reported about anxiety and mental health issues, and that percentage went up to 42% in 2022. And only half of the adults that actually have some sort of a mental health issue receive some care. So any additional comments there? It's very consistent with what we've seen. 
I, I remember looking at some numbers across our usage globally prior to the pandemic, and I believe it was around 23 or 24% of all cases in some way reflected a mental health issue. And we've recently done some studies post, I won't say post-COVID, but at least since, and we're seeing that since the pandemic, those numbers have risen dramatically close to the levels that you're referring to. I don't have those exact numbers in front of me, but it sounds like what we're experiencing. The other thing I also want to mention is we serve over 12 million users through our consumer app, but when you put together our various partnerships around the world with the likes of Kaiser Permanente and Sutter and several of our leading life sciences companies, and over in Europe, we work with a lot of leading partners as well, we actually have over 50 million users on the platform. And every single case that gets entered into the system makes the ultimate algorithms smarter and smarter because we're learning more and more from these global cases that Um, get entered. The accuracy of symptoms checkers is one thing, but another thing is also how the one that sees the interpretation is going to understand it. So how do you see that patients perhaps need to be educated more to understand the results that you present to them. We think that, first of all, healthcare literacy is incredibly important. We often, when we go to see a medical professional or a doctor, we're often faced with very complex medical terms, and often we're not comfortable if we don't really understand them. The other thing is, many times these conditions, people feel a stigma, especially when it gets to some of the mental health conditions. They're not comfortable talking about it. So what we've actually found is by having a very empathetic question and answer style chat with the user, many times they feel even more comfortable giving the information that they're looking for. The other thing that we're doing to improve the overall literacy is making sure that these complex medical terms are in plain, simple language that most people can understand. So we've been working overtime to to lower the reading level required to be able to understand, and we've now worked, we're now down to about a seventh grade reading level to make it more widely accessible and more people understand it. And then lastly, it's very important that these platforms be multilingual. So we are constantly adding new languages to support our global user base. About one-third of all of our users come from less developed countries, lower middle-income countries. So we're now up to 11 languages that we support, and we have the ability actually with our enterprise partners for a user to do an assessment in one language, but the clinician to receive it in another. So for instance, here in the United States, we have a lot of Hispanic-speaking population where many health systems are serving people that, that don't speak English. So those people are able to do their ADA assessment in Spanish, but then the clinician actually receive it in their native language, which is English. And as we've expanded, it's really opened up the user base. So for instance, Ada recently became the first medical app available in Swahili. And there's 100 million people that speak Swahili that now have the ability to use an application like this to help them better manage and find the healthcare they need. So when you do the translations, how are they done when it comes to diagnosis? Do you just code the diagnosis and then translate that based on the, let's say, ICD or SNOMED? We do two things. One, yes, we do the translation so that the language translation is accurate and reflective. But we also go ahead and we have uh, we hire people that are familiar with what I'll call the localese of the language because many times it's not just the translation in the language but it's how words are used how they're put together in in phrases so 
we not only make sure that we're doing the proper translation, but we also localize it so that people can understand it. And we've actually had certain languages where we've had to develop multiple versions of it. So for instance, the obvious one is we have US English and UK English. But we also have to have different versions of Portuguese and some other languages because we found different regions, different countries that might speak the same language on the surface actually have different actually local versions that they use. So we make sure that we can support all of them so that we can expand our user base. You mentioned Swahili and partnerships that you are making on the ground. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Because especially in Africa, there's a difference between kind of the traditional healers and the Western medicine that is uh, provided. So how do you bridge that gap in gaining the trust of the patients in different cultures? Sure. We have a division of our company. We call it the Global Health Initiative, or GHI, which is specifically built to work with philanthropic organizations to make aid available in those particular regions. We have set a vision, a moonshot for ourselves, to get aid in the hands of one billion people on Earth. And one of the ways, in addition to our consumer app and our enterprise partners, we do that is th through these philanthropic partnerships. So we have been backed by some of the world's leading foundations. That includes the Gates Foundation Botner, and several others, and we work with them as they try to expand their research and their, their philanthropic efforts, and they often fund either the distribution or the development of a certain version of ADA for a certain market. When's the deadline for that one billion? <laughs> sure. As soon as possible. <laughs> <laughs> a good answer. <laughs> You talked a little bit about how the whole landscape is changing with symptom checkers, but still looking at the future, what do you see as the next thing for symptom checkers? What do you expect from 2023 and uh, the years onwards? I think to date people have been looking at symptom checkers more as just providing what we call triage advice. I have a bee sting. My child's sick has an earache. What type of care do I need to seek? There hasn't been enough, enough emphasis put on what could really be causing this. What are the conditions at play? And that's what we believe is going to become a big part of this as it expands. As the doctors themselves realize the value of this data being in their hands, it's not just an accurate triage recommendation that's important. It's the recommended conditions that could be at play that become as important. And that's when the additional accuracy, coverage, safety that we bring to the table is going to become that much more important. Because we do believe that a slight improvement in accuracy not just makes it a better experience, but ultimately is going to save people's lives. You've been listening to Faces of Digital Health, a proud member of the Health Podcast Network. Stay tuned, subscribe to the podcast to get new episodes automatically, and also check out our newsletter at fodh.substack.com, that's fodh.substack.com, and see what we covered in the last month. Stay tuned.